If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Last week we considered the Apostle John's great statement that God is light. We caught a glimpse of God's glory, his perfect but at the same time awful holiness, that how bright it is, so bright that we can't gaze steadily at God's holiness. We talked a little bit about God's enjoyment and love of all that is good and all that's holy and his pure hatred, actually, of everything that's evil and that doesn't stand up to his perfection. We further considered the idea of fellowship. Do you remember we talked about that word koinonia? We talked about fellowship, which the apostle progresses further in this chapter. He says that those who say that they know God but walk in darkness have no koinonia with God. And it's this idea that John further develops in these verses that we're covering today. This passage, verses 8 to 10, is the culmination of a little kind of literary pattern that begun in verse 6. You might have noticed it. In verse 6, we've got this, if we say. You know, we've got if we say, if we, uh, I think it's walk, and then if we've got if we say again, if we confess and then again if we say. So we've got this little kind of literary pattern. And there are five clauses. You know what clauses means? That kind of five mini statements here in this little pattern. And in these five clauses, three of the clauses have negative outcomes and two of them have positive outcomes. You'll see that there. Every time he says if we and there's a little statement that comes after it. And three are negative, three are positive. And the order goes negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. It's a cool little pattern, isn't it? Sometimes you can miss these things if you just read in verse by verse or, or what have you. And the pattern ends today in verse 10 with a very stark conclusion that we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Wow. Interestingly, every if we say in this little pattern is followed by a negative. Every time you read if we say it's followed by a negative and every action is always followed by a positive. And every one of these actions and every one of these statements of if we say is in the present tense in the original language. So you get in a sense of if we say and are saying, if we walk and are walking, uh, if we confess and are confessing, there's that sense of continuality, uh, a continuation of action. And I think for me, perhaps the thing that popped out to me there was just simply this, is that I think it's a reminder to us as Christians that so often talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. It's the walking the walk that bears fruit in the long run. So we begin today in verse 8. If we say we have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, as we begin to get accustomed with John's style, remember last week we talked a little bit about the Bible and how it's got one author, God, but it's got many scribes, lots of different writers from different backgrounds, that it's all the Word of God. In a, in a similar way to how Jesus is fully man yet fully God, the Bible is written by one author, 
divinely God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but at the same time it was written by human hands God didn't simply kind of take hold of people and possess them he wrote through their agency and so we get accustomed to John's very human style but that God uses and we see how the apostle often starts with generalizations and then he moves down to particulars he starts here with God is light we've got this big general statement and then he begins to narrow down that that meaning so we understand it further these themes of light and darkness we now see them getting developed into themes of truth and falsehood into themes of purity and sinfulness so what does he mean here by if we say we have no sin? Where does this train of thought for John come from? Well, I think this, the statement that God is light, we learnt last week, is speaking about what? It's speaking about God's holiness, isn't it? God is light. He's perfectly holy. We talked last week about imagining the most vibrant light you could ever think of thinking about the sun how you can't stare steadily at it without burning your retinas and God is holy in a much more pure sense than the sun is bright there's no darkness in him at all and as creaturely beings with finite eyes and, and sinful hearts we could never stand in the glory of God's holiness it'd be impossible it would destroy us and so when we get this idea that God is light means that he's speaking of his absolute holiness we know this if light means holiness the brightest light conceivable which is God will always expose darkness and darkness in the Bible is consistently a metaphor for sin so in John's thinking here knowledge of God's holiness was immediately connected with a consciousness of an awareness of sin. So this idea of light in John's mind was immediately connected to this awareness of sin. Just like we're here in the, in the sun today and we can see things being revealed, uh, things being revealed that perhaps wouldn't be on a cloudy day. We see more clearly as we stand in God's holiness, in his presence, in his light, in the light of his word, things in our hearts we see more clearly when we stand in God's holiness. Just as Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in the garden, so we too have this natural hereditary inclination to hide sin from God, to put it in the darkness. And this denial manifests itself in a number of different ways. Some today might outright deny that they have original sin. In fact, lots of Christians do. Original sin is this understanding that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they passed on that sinful nature from generation to generation to generation right throughout the human race. And since we all have the same parenthood in Adam and Eve there's nobody that hasn't been infected by this original sin that everybody born naturally into this world is born into sin you know David and his psalm I think it's psalm 51 you know, I was I was born in in iniquity every single person born is born into the sin of Adam and Eve and there are some today that would deny this saying that there is no sinful nature into which we're born they believe that you know babies are, are born perfect morally perfect and holy 
and they're actually only corrupted by bad company. They learn to sin. It's not something they're born with the natural inclination to do. And they believe that it's possible to live a, a morally blameless life. And in fact, we're going to do a bit of church history here for a moment, so stay awake if you can. There was a 4th century British monk who believed all of this and began this, in a kind of, began to popularise this belief by the name of Pelagius. So there's a name for you to remember, Pelagius. He was a British monk. And he believed that mankind was inherently good. That mankind enters into the world without bondage to sin and has the power within his own will to choose right from wrong. This heresy is now known as Pelagianism. It's a heresy. And it was condemned by the church largely because of the work of another man, another note for your church history studies, called Augustine. And although Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy, a lot of its core beliefs, to be honest, have once again become popular in the church today. And I think because we're sort of ignorant about Pelagius and what he taught, most of us wouldn't be able to spot Pelagianism if it was right up in our face because we just wouldn't know what we're looking for. There's a, a late theologian, a guy that passed away just a few years ago called R.C. Sproul. And he was asked what Martin Luther, the reformer, might say to today's church. And he said, I think Martin Luther would write on the modern church captivity to Pelagianism. So this is something that is really widespread in our churches today. And I want to talk to you a bit today about how you might spot that and what is the true kind of apostolic understanding of sin and of what mankind looks like. So what on earth would it look like to be a Pelagian church? Well, most people have never heard of this guy, Pelagius. I don't know how many of you have. Raise your hand if you've heard of Pelagius. Yeah, very few people have heard of him. So how would you spot the influences of his false teachings in the church? Well, I'll tell you this for sure. One thing that will be conspicuously missing in a Pelagian pastor's preaching, there's some good alliteration for you, will be the very thing that the Apostle John is addressing here in these verses. Sin. Sin. You will see an absence of the concept of sin in a Pelagian church. Have you ever noticed how little the issue of sin and in particular, personal sin is ever addressed by modern preachers. I don't know if you've noticed that. If it's mentioned at all, it's spoken of more like a kind of sickness, like an ailment that we suffer from, rather than something that we do and are guilty of. Right? Sin is spoken of something we need to be set free from, not something that we are actually guilty of doing. And... This idea is another kind of more subtle way of denying sin. It's not outright saying we don't have sin, but it's denying sin because it's saying actually we're just the victim of sin. We're not the perpetrators. It's a sickness to us. We are guiltless in a sense that we've been afflicted by it. We didn't deserve to be sinful, but we've been smeared by Adam and it's not fair and, and we're just now ailing under the influence of sin. But that's a very subtle way of saying we actually have no sin, isn't it? very subtle way of saying that well I've lost my page here that, <laughs> this idea is another more subtle way of denying it um, I think there is a very kind of common misunderstanding about sin and I know we're getting bogged down in this idea of sin and maybe you're, you're feeling oh gosh do we have to hear again about sin and wrath and judgment and all the negative stuff well 
I get it, okay? But you'll see that our study of sin is going to make God's grace look bigger by the end of this preach. I promise you. A misunderstanding about sin will necessarily lead to a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. If we believe that sin is something outside of us, that just affects us, that we're effectively not guilty of sin. It's just something that kind of, from one, from one time to another, we, we get caught up in it. We're missing, really, what the Bible has to say about us. You see, if we believe that we're not actually sinners, but we simply trip up sometimes, why would God then need to punish us for sin? Surely if sin's outside of us, God could punish that sin because it's elsewhere. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't send sin to hell, does he? He sends sinners to hell. Is this making sense? This view of sin being more of an affliction than something that we actually do was popularized by a guy called W.M. Paul Young, who wrote the book The Shack. Now, I know many of you have got the book on the shelf. I do too at home, okay? So I'm not coming here to bash on the shack, but what I will say is there's a lot of stuff in there that is very, very, very Pelagian. Okay, so here's a quote from W.M. Paul Young's The Shack. The character called Papa, who, re who represents God the Father, says this, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to what? to cure it did you hear that to cure it as if sin was a sickness and it says Paul Young certainly says it's not my purpose to punish it now how that man can believe that and then go ahead and read Isaiah 53 that Pippa quoted earlier I literally don't know I literally don't know if there's one thing that Jesus did on the cross it was take the punishment which was ours to take on our behalf for sin. So to say that I'm a victim of sin is as good as saying I have no sin since it denies your agency in the actual doing of sin. And I think also another verse or passage I'd like to show to W.M. Paul Young would be the great chapter from Romans chapter 3 from 10. It says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. Now, there's another idea that's very popular in this day and age, isn't it? That everybody's just seeking for God. Everyone's looking for God, but they're looking in the wrong places. In fact, Joel Osteen says himself, doesn't he? He says, I just believe most people want a relationship with God. Well, the Bible says, none seeks after God. The Bible denies that there are any God seekers. Apart from the grace of God, we reject God every single time. Paul says, all have turned aside. These are quotes from the Old Testament as well. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Another telltale sign of modern Pelagianism is that there will be a lot of focus on man, on what man can do, of how noble and good man is. By man, I obviously mean mankind, man and woman. There will be that unhealthy amount of focus 
on us and what we do and how we respond and how we live. In these modern semi-Pelagian churches, the emphasis on God's sovereign grace is always diminished. It must be. God's grace is simply viewed as a, a helping hand, a divine helping hand to give us a leg up where we need a bit of help. Whereas the biblical view of grace is actually the picture of Lazarus. You know the story of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who had been dead in the tomb for four days, unable to help himself, no free will to choose to raise himself up. It was Jesus' call and nothing else that woke him up. The gospel puts man in his place, doesn't it? It shows us our rebellion against God and our absolute dependence on nothing but the grace of God to save us in the day of judgment. Then John moves the thought on, doesn't he? He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, actually. We deceive ourselves. Have you ever told yourself a lie so much that you begin to believe it? Or have you ever laboured under the lie that somebody else has told you about yourself so much that you began to believe it? It's very possible to do that. And this is what the Bible says about those who claim not to have sin or say that, well, you know, it's not really my fault because in the circumstances I lived in, I could have only sinned and we excuse it away. Or those that maybe say, well, I'm just a victim of sin. You know, it's just part of the sickness of living in the world, but it's not really me who's sinning. Those people who say that may not be fooling God, but they're certainly fooling themselves. It's not a pleasant thing to understand about yourself that you're a sinner, is it? That you're not only living in a sinful world, but that you yourself are perpetrating sin. You are continually adding to the sin in the world. It's true that even as a Christian who's been born again, there's still a remnant of the old man. There's still a remnant of that sinful self preserved in the flesh, in your actual body, with which we've got to wrestle for the remainder of earthly days. It's not something that we maybe want to dwell on, is it? But it's true. We don't dwell on this truth because I've got some kind of morbid fascination with it or that I've got low self-esteem. That's not why we're doing that here. And I often find that that, that that is the accusation of many of these modern churches. Well, people don't really come to church to hear something that's going to discourage them, do they? People don't want to hear about how bad they are. They already know that. Do they? Do they really? If you ask the average person on the street whether they think they're a good person, I'm telling you now, somebody that does street evangelism, 99, point, sorry, 99 times out of 100, they tell you they are a good person. People do believe they're good because they've got no standard by which to judge it. Their standard is comparing themselves to whoever they see on the front page of the Daily Mail, not comparing themselves to the standard held up in God's Word. Of course people don't like to hear that they're sinful. And that's why we must preach it. And I do think that so much of modern church is based around catering to people's feelings. What do people want? Let's give the people what they want. Let's encourage them. Let's send them away with a pat on the back so they can go through their week feeling pumped up about who they are. Well, if you want that, there's plenty of TED Talks on the internet I can direct you to. But unfortunately, that's not the job of a Christian preacher. 
We don't dwell on these facts because they're morbid, because we've got problems with self-esteem. We dwell on them because they're true, because that's what the Bible says about us, about people. It says we're not victims in need of healing, ultimately, but we in our flesh, before we come to God, are rebels. We're enemies of God. And for me, this is the miracle of salvation that God came to save, not his friends, but we were his enemies. We were at enmity with God. I know Jesus says, I lay down my life for my friends, but guess what? He makes you his friend. Naturally speaking, everyone born in this world is a hater of God. It's just what the Bible says. Jesus laid down his life for us while we were still sinners, Romans 5. We were still at war with him when he gave his life for us. So to live as a Christian and claiming that you've got no sin is actually deception. It's self-deception. And John says it's evidence that the truth isn't in you. Because you won't accept the word of God concerning you, that you are a sinner. Charles Spurgeon said this. I love this quote. I actually posted it the other day because it's just brilliant. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As the salt flavours every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It's easy to spot those who are deceiving themselves in this respect. You can tell this about them because the gospel that they preach is one of deliver us from sickness, poverty, oppression and wrong thinking. But there's little said about sin. There's little to no acknowledgement of man's sinfulness and God's holiness. There's no real mention of God's wrath. Have you noticed how that subject has become so unpopular in churches? When was the last time you heard a worship song about God's wrath? They're few and far between, aren't they? You will, however, get a heavy dose of, of God's love. Yeah? But let me tell you this. God's love and grace make no sense unless we first understand his holiness, his absolute moral perfection and his judgment and hatred of all things that are sinful and wrong. That's the lens through which we have to view God's love. God's love is not separate from his holiness, just as God's holiness is not separate from his love. You can't divide up God's attributes to make sense to you. We have to take them as they are, as the Bible presents them. And the true gospel is not affirming of mankind. The Bible is not a big pat on the back for us, is it? It's actually an indictment against the sinfulness and pride of man. That we're sinners, that we're at war with God, a holy and all-powerful God. And can do nothing in and of ourselves to change that. The true gospel reveals a God who is absolutely perfect in his love. And through his love he chooses those of us who are utterly unworthy of being saved. And it's he that does all the work. It's he who deserves all the glory. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century uh, preacher, he said this, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So John teaches that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to dive into this word quickly before I finish. Confession. Now in Romans 6.6, 6, and this also, this, this truth here before I dive into the word study, this truth is something I want you to take away from today. Romans 6.6 6 teaches, we know that the old self has been crucified with Christ. 
that the old man has been crucified, past tense. So your old self that was born in Adam, enslaved to sin, has been crucified with Christ. It's not waiting to be crucified, it has gone. And that we have our new creation in Christ Jesus, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. However, in that same passage from Romans 6, I don't know if you notice, but Paul uses two phrases. He says, the old self has been crucified in order that the body of flesh might be done away with. I don't know if you notice that. The body of flesh might be done away with. That it might be condemned and ultimately pass away. But the fact is, the old man has been crucified, past tense, but the body of sin remains with us. It's condemned, but it's not gone in the moment. Elsewhere, he uses the term flesh to refer to that same concept of the body of sin. Or in Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, he refers to it as the body of death. He teaches that it is in the flesh, in this body of sin, in the physical body where sin remains to this day, even in the life of a believer. And this explains our constant wrestle with sin that we have as a daily basis. Don't we all recognize that? No matter how long you've been a Christian, you still have to wrestle with your flesh. And you will have to until we go to glory. However, the difference is that now as believers, we're not doing our sin from a place of our natural being because the old man's been crucified. It's gone. The sin that we do now is as a result of the flesh. It's actually, as Romans 7 talks about, the flesh doing the sinning. The law of sin that's alive in your members, your physical body that's doing the sin. So when we sin now as Christians, so often it can bring us to this place of, am I even saved? I screwed up again, God. Does this mean I'm not a Christian now? The apostolic answer to that is, don't be silly. It's not the real you, the new you, that's sinning. It's the law of sin still alive. The body of sin alive in your physical body. It's condemned. It's passing away. But you've still got to wrestle with it until the day that you lose this body and you gain a new one. Isn't that encouraging? John says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the image that I have on my head when I think about confession is that idea of me sat outside a little box with a priest inside it, telling him a list of all my vices. <laughs> now, this understanding of confession doesn't really capture the full thrust of what John's saying. What I find really cool is, is reading the Greek word. It's actually a compound verb. It's two words smashed together. It, it's this. It's uh, homologomen. Okay? So the first word is homo, which means same as. Okay? The same. And the second word, logos, which is word or saying. So the same word. It's literally saying to say the same as. That's what confession literally means. You can translate it as confession, but literally it's to say the same as. So the apostle isn't asking us to visit some dude in a box and list off our vices to him. He's asking us to own our sins, to say the same as God about who we are, to agree with God about our guilt and about our desperate need of his grace. Spurgeon puts it really well. He says, it, he says this, 
To confess sin does not mean merely on some one occasion to repeat a catalogue of sins before God in private, nor at certain set seasons to rehearse a list of our faults, but it means a lifelong acknowledgement of our sin. We must take our places as men and women who have sinned and never attempt to occupy the position of innocent beings. End quote. This is what it means to walk in the light. It's authenticity. It's no false personas, no masks, no platform Christianity, but owning the truth about ourselves, owning our failures, owning our sinfulness. This might sound really discouraging and morbid, but I'm telling you now, this is one of the best things that God has taught me over the years I've been pastoring. Own who God says you are. You do not deserve anything but judgment, Graham. You don't deserve my grace. Uh, there's nothing I can do to twist God's arm up his back to give me something good. I cannot put God in my debt, and neither can you. Spurgeon again says, The Lord cannot stand with us on the platform of seeming an appearance, but only on the ground of what we really are. And therefore, in proportion as we're untrue, we cut ourselves off from God. This is real authenticity. And this is what I, w I believe HCC has to be about, is understanding what God's word says about us and accepting his grace with a naked hand of faith. Not trying to twist God's arm behind his back because we're living such moral lives or because we're doing some super awesome things for God. Somehow that means he's got to bless us. No, we approach God with nothing but an empty hand of faith, recognizing we deserve nothing but judgment. But because he's good, he gives us grace, forgiveness, mercy, adoption, and blessing. You might be saying, well, this is depressing. Surely God wouldn't want us to have such a morbid self-perception. Won't this kind of teaching lead to low self-esteem and depression? Well, I'd say quite the contrary. It's actually the most liberating thing I believe about myself. Graham Phillips is a sinner. It's liberating. <laughs> it's true. The longer that I walk with God, the more I know about my own unworthiness and sinfulness. It's not just the things that I do that are wrong. It's the things that I don't do that are right. Jesus himself said that the greatest commandment in the whole law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself good grief. Do you love God with all of yourself? Do you love him with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul? Or do you, like me, find your heart colder than it should be? Do you find your mind reckons it has better things to think on than God? Do you find it difficult to engage in worship? Do you have to G yourself up? That's sin. It's not about just what we do, it's about what we don't do. What we find ourselves unable to do. So this is what we do as Christians. We say, God, forgive me for my lukewarmness, for my half-hearted devotion to you. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. God promises us that. When we confess and say the same things about ourselves to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us, not just from some sins or some unrighteousness, but all unrighteousness. There isn't a single shadow of darkness in our life that he's unwilling or unable to blitz with his light. I wonder if you're ashamed to come to God because you feel you've done something so dark and so evil that he could never forgive you. 
Well, this should be the encouragement to you, this passage here. He's able to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confess it. Own it. Stop making excuses for yourself. Bring it before God and he will forgive you. Spurgeon says this again. I'm just going to smash the the Spurgeon today because he's just better than I am at saying these things. He says this, Our only safe course, and may the Spirit of God grant us grace to follow it, is to come to God as we actually are and ask him to deal with us in Christ Jesus according to our actual condition. If we're to walk with God at all, it must be in the light. And if we once walk in the light with him, our condition will tally with the description of verse 7. And we shall see sin in ourselves and daily feel the blood of Jesus cleansing us therefrom. This activity of confessing our sins is to be a daily rhythm of life, just like prayer or worship. The more that we walk in the light, the more we own the darkness in us, and the more it's exposed and we become conscious of it. So owning owning these sins is just a part of what it means to be a Christian. It isn't a morbid fascination or a grim outlook on life. It's an acknowledgement of the truth about who God is and who we are. You see, John, the author of this book, says in his gospel, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works for evil. As Christians, what's changed in us is not that we've suddenly become perfect and that we never slip and, and never sin. The difference is that now we are coming into the light and we're having these things exposed. It's a scary process. But that's what being a Christian means. Not that we hide away and pretend to be perfect. Not that we put a mask on and say the right things and walk the walk, sorry, talk the talk and just put that Christian mask on that's not what this is talking about this is talking about a radical authenticity a walking in the light and an acknowledgement of who we are warts and all now if we say we haven't sinned what John says is terrible is that we make God a liar and this is our final focus in today's study to say we haven't sinned is actually to make a mockery of God. It's to call him a fool. It's to say that his diagnosis of the human condition was wrong. That there was no need to send his son to bear our iniquities on the cross, just like Paul Young said. This is to make God a liar. And as Paul says in Romans 3, let God be true and every man a liar. God's diagnosis of the human condition, yeah, it's a grave one. It's very grave doesn't tally with our modern sensibilities and we see ourselves as the masters and commanders of our own destiny as inherently good and worthy of good things there's many mantras out in the world today like that aren't there you are enough you're enough no you're not i'm not enough not by any stretch of the imagination the bible consistently puts mankind in its place as deserving of nothing but the wrath of god Though we were created good, I'm not for one minute suggesting God made a mistake when he created man. We all fell into sin when Adam fell into sin. And that sin corrupts everything about us. The image of God which was bestowed upon Adam and Eve became cracked and distorted in every way imaginable at that moment of sin. And now, 
Brothers and sisters, we stand before God with nothing to commend ourselves to him. We've got nothing with which to put God in our debt. We can't gain his favor, favor rather through good deeds or religious obedience or wisdom or kindness. It's only the empty hand of faith in his son Jesus Christ which is able to put us right with God. It's a quote from Dr. James White. He says, It is a faith that comes with an empty hand, claiming nothing for itself, but seeking its all in Christ. This empty-handed faith is the kind of faith that results in right standing with God. And once more from Spurgeon. Come as citizens of Calais did to King Edward III. When the city was captured, come with ropes around your neck, owning that if sentence be executed upon you, you deserve it. Come at once in all your filthiness and dishabille. Come with no jewels in your ears, with no ornaments upon your necks, with no recommendation whatsoever. Come as sinners by nature and as sinners by practice. Plead nothing that looks like goodness, but come in your sin. Do not try to put one touch of paint on those cheeks of yours, nor imitate the flush of health upon those consumptive countenances. Come honestly as you are and say, Lord, look at me as I am, a worse sinner even than I think myself to be. And then show the infinity of thy free grace and the power of Jesus' dying love in saving me, even me. My prayer is today that as Christians we walk in authenticity. We walk humbly. And that we confess our sins to God daily. It becomes part of the rhythm of our lives. And that as we do that, we're going to walk openly with one another. I'm not going to try and pretend to you that I'm something that I'm not. And likewise, you as my brothers and sisters, you do likewise toward me. And Paul, sorry, John says in this epistle, doesn't he, that it's, th- it's through that walking in the light we have real fellowship with one another. Let's pray. And then I'm going to ask us to just break up into groups and spend a few moments just discussing and praying what we've heard today. Lord God, sometimes when we read your Bible, it cuts us to the core. Sometimes the things it has to say about us aren't easy to hear. Sometimes they don't always leave us feeling built up. But we know, Lord God, that this sword that cuts also heals. We know, Lord God, that it's surgical. That, Father, you enter like the master surgeon and you remove all the effects of sin in our lives if we would but confess it. And so, Lord, we pray that this word to us today would be like a divine scalpel, that it would come in and remove any pretense that we might have of putting you in our debt, any pretense we might have of being just good people, and remind us that, Lord God, we are here today as born-again believers through nothing but the sovereign grace of God, through your good pleasure, through your sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And Lord, we just want to rejoice in that fact. We want to thank you for that and remember it daily. Lord, I pray now that as we, we break up into groups that you would just speak to us about maybe any areas of darkness in our lives that we're having exposed right now even. And as we share some of that with our brothers and sisters, we just pray, Lord God, you would enable us to confess those and to say the same about ourselves as you do in order that you could cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that that's the truth, that any sin brought out into the light loses its power. So, Lord God, give us courage and boldness today. 
to live out this Christian life. And we pray, come in your grace and your mercy and cleanse us. Wash us clean of the filth that clings to us, Lord God. Strengthen us against the flesh to choose the Spirit this week. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.